0: It, it does my heart good to see you talking with one another. Thank you for that. Um, so we are actually in the final week of a series on the book of Second Corinthians. Um, I had to break it up on purpose uh, because it would have been a super, super... I mean, I didn't have to. I chose to break it up on purpose because it would have been a super, super, super long series had I gone, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so actually today we were supposed to be about halfway through the book of 2 Corinthians, but instead, we're still in Second Corinthians, chapter four. So, um, I keep sort of delving into stuff and going, "Oh, I can't. I got to break that up anyway." And uh, so, we've we've talked about all sorts of things. Um, we've talked about uh, the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things that Paul has covered in this letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. He covered Satan, uh, the one who opposes us and wants to isolate us and bring chaos into our lives and separate us from God and separate us from those who would, uh, would want what is right and good for us. We talked about integrity, and uh, talked about how important it is um, to live in this world uh, in such a way that to the best of your ability, uh, you tell the truth and you lead with integrity even when it costs you. It's what Jesus did, and it's very much a part of the reason that he died. And so we talked about all these things. Today, we're going to be jumping into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Verses 7 through 18, but before I do that, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pray. Father, I just ask that you would be um, in this place this morning. I pray, Father, that um, not a single one of us would be able to leave this place without without having some encounter with you, the living God. And obviously, Father, what I would long for is that the encounter that these people would have with you would either be an encounter that leads them to trust in you as their good father and your son, Jesus, as their savior, maybe even for the first time, or that their encounter with you um, might actually just be a reminder uh, of who you are and of who they are and how they can trust in you, Father. But regardless of how you um, introduce yourself or engage people this morning, I pray that you would do so, and I pray that no one would leave this room this morning without realizing that they've come into the presence of the Almighty God, the author of reality. So I pray all these things today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for your glory and for your honor. Amen. So one of the things that has happened to me probably in the last, I don't know, maybe 20 years is uh, I, I love looking at architecture. And so as we've traveled to various parts of Europe or to Charleston, South Carolina, or Savannah, or even downtown Rome or you know, wherever we find ourselves, um, I love aesthetics, and so I love looking at these buildings and looking at the, the beauty of them and how they've been put together. One of my favorite architects, whose who's work I've never actually seen, is in Barcelona. It's a man named Antonio Gaudi. So if some of you guys are familiar with the works of Gaudi. Um, there's a sense in which uh, he's a little bit uh, Dr. Seuss meets, meets F- Frank Lloyd Wright, right? It's a very interesting combination, so if you've ever read Dr. Seuss before, just apply that to architecture, and that's who Gaudi is, essentially. We've got some pictures of some of his works up here. I'll, we'll just, if you just want to scroll through them, that's, a little, that's fine. But between 1984 and 2005, seven of his works were declared World Heritage Sites by UNESCO. And so, in other words, he's been recognized as one of the world's greatest architects. And so, uh, just uh, amazing, amazing architecture that is just mind-blowing. And again, he died back in the 20s, and so uh, he was just way, way before his time. Now, what's interesting about Gaudi is, uh, even though he was recognized as one of the most um, famous and influential uh, architects all the way back in his day, I mean, p- people knew who he was, and they knew he was a fantastic artist. However, he was such an interesting person that people would pass by him on the street or actually in Sagrada Familia, which is um, the big church that he's done that's still in Barcelona. That you know, here almost 100 years later still is unfinished, but he would walk around in rags, right? And so people would walk by him on the street because they thought he was a homeless guy, right? Or they'd be walking through Sagrada Familia, and they would see him. They wouldn't pay any attention to him because they were like, dude, who's that homeless guy that just wandered in off the street? And so he externally looked like nothing, right? What was interesting is when he was 73 years old, he left Sagrada Familia, where he was still in the process of, of building this amazing cathedral, And he was making his way uh, to church to go to Mass this day and to pray when he was actually struck by a a trolley. And he wasn't killed immediately, but he was injured pretty badly. And people walked by and they looked and they saw what they thought was this homeless man lying in the street in his own blood, and they just thought, well, that's too bad. Well, a little while later, finally, after several hours, somebody picked this old, you know, crusty looking uh, man off of the street and they dragged him to a hospital indigence and they threw him there in a bed along with all the other people who nobody cared for nobody paid any attention to and they gave him some rudimentary care but very little well a couple of days later um, friends of his and members of his family hadn't seen him in two days so they started looking around for him and, uh, and they checked the hospitals and one of the places they checked was this hospital for indigence and they found him lying there in a bed near death and uh, several days later he passed away. Now, they held his funeral um, in the Sagrada Familia, this amazing cathedral that he had designed, and it was packed to the gills with people coming to honor this old uh, and wonderful architect. It was amazing. The, The statement that was written on his tombstone is this, Antonio Gaudi, a man of exemplary life, an extraordinary craftsman, the author of this marvelous work, they're talking about the Sagrada Familia, the church... He died piously in Barcelona on the 10th day of June 1926. Henceforward, uh, the ashes of so great a man await the resurrection of the dead. May he rest in peace. As a devout Christian, he was given the name God's architect. It's a really amazing story. He may not have been much to look at on the outside, but the moral of his life and of this story is that inside he possessed something wonderful and something amazing, something powerful. What's interesting is that's what 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, that that's true about us as believers as well. Let's jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Paul is writing this letter to this Corinthian church. He says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay in earthen vessels For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow for the glory of God. In other words, your suffering is not meaningless. It's got purpose. Verse 16, therefore do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not what on, is, on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, I don't know if it's readily apparent to you, but there's so much in that verse, uh, in the, that series of verses, we're not going to be able to cover it all. And so here's what we're not going to be delving into. So um, I'll talk about three things at least I had to cut out of my sermon prep. One was this idea that our mortality reveals Jesus' life in us, right? That's number one. Number two, our trials bring glory to God. You can think about any number of stories how that would be true. Number three, our suffering actually draws others to Christ, right? I think about Steve this morning sharing his story of suffering. I think about the life and the death of Mike Sweeney, I think about the, the, the death of my grandmother. Right? I think about all of these people who are devout believers who suffered, and yet their stories have actually served to draw other people to Christ. We're going to cover two things today. The first that we're going to cover is that for followers of Jesus, frailty actually reveals God's power in us or through us. So our frailty reveals God's power. Listen to verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay and earthen vessels to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So jars of clay, pretty familiar with that imagery, I would think. Here's some pictures of actual jars of clay from the first century AD, see them there. And here are some clay pots from Home Depot, you can see them there, right? Still 2,000 years later, lots of clay pots being used. They were sort of the Tupperware or the Ziploc bag of the ancient Near Eastern world, right? People would have stored grain, and they would have put wheat and all sorts of things in them, right? In fact, outside of the city of Rome, Italy, there's a place called Monte Testaccio, and it's 115 feet tall. It's a kilometer, it's a square kilometer, and it's comprised of over 53 million of these clay pots. In other words, these are very, very normal things that existed back in that world, and they're made of clay, right? So they're pretty fragile. If you drop one on the ground, it's likely that it's going to break. You hit it with a shovel, it's probably going to crack or chip or break altogether, right? If you let it sit out in the weather for too long, it's eventually going to begin to decompose and break down. And Paul is saying that in the same way that these clay pots are fragile, and we all know it as human beings, we're fragile as well. We're quite frail. And some of us in this room can identify with Paul really, really easily, at least up to a point. As we've gotten older, our bodies have begun to break down. A shoulder surgery here, some dental work there, maybe some reading glasses, maybe some insulin, maybe some Lipitor for your high cholesterol, right? Maybe Zoloft or Prozac for depression and Xanax for anxiety, right? We understand the idea of our human frailty physically, spiritually, and emotionally, and yet, in other ways, we actually don't really understand the fragility and the frailty that Paul is talking about. The average life expectancy in first century Rome was about 30 years. 30 years, right? Uh, yeah, so half of us in this room would have either be dead or you would considered being sort of in your golden years, right? Not only that, but 75% of children would die before the age of 10, right? Just imagine what it would have been like to have been a parent living in that world a mother losing your children would have been crushing right I mean basically if you got a hangnail or an ingrown hair your chance of survival was like 35 percent that's a joke it's not true there's a list of statistics I made that one up all right (laughs) I just love the fact somebody's gonna leave here today and go did you know just kidding in 2019 if you've got bad vision you just go get glasses 2,000 years ago, you stumble around bumping into things, and you hope the person's hand you grab at the butcher shop is your wife's hand and not the butcher's. You know what I mean? Like, that's what would happen. Today, if you have a cavity, you just go to the dentist and you get a a filling. Back then, if you get a cavity, you chug a flagon of mead, three of your friends sit on top of you, and some dude with a wooden mallet goes donk and just knocks your tooth out, right? I mean, it's just a different world. If you get a cold back then, You go to some, you know, apothecary, and he says, what you need is really good bleeding, right, in the words of Steve Martin. At the time of this writing, Paul would have been in his 40s or 50s, probably more likely in his 50s. This is a world with no toothpaste, no cholesterol medication, no antibiotics. None of that stuff existed. And so you can imagine that when he said, we have this treasure in jars of clay, his experience of mortality was probably a little bit different than ours is. He would have been deeply and personally and painfully aware of just how frail and fragile our lives truly are as human beings, right? And yet, he says the great irony is the amazing contrast of what God does with these jars of clay, these earthen vessels. He places this treasure in them like Gaudi. But then what he does when he's talking about the hidden treasure, he's talking about the Holy Spirit within us. That's what chapter 3 was largely about. But he talks about also the creative power of God within us as the Holy Spirit works in us in the same way that God said, let there be light into a world of darkness, and light came into being in the same way that same power exists in our own hearts and spirits, that God is working in us to create light within us. And it's this treasure, this creative power, Right? the Holy Spirit's power within us that shines so brightly precisely because it's housed in such a frail vessel. In 1994, Mother Teresa left Calcutta to visit America. At the time, she was 84 years old. She would die three years later. And the, the occasion for her visit to America was the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., this huge gathering of influential and powerful people in Washington. And what was even more ironic is she was invited to speak there by Bill Clinton himself, the president. It was held at the Washington Hilton, so this majestic building, and had 3,000 people packed into this elegant ballroom in order to hear her speak. And up on the stage were Bill and Hillary Clinton and Al and Tipper Gore, a few select VIPs, some billionaires, some Supreme Court judges, and the highest-ranking members of Congress all sat up on the stage. And when it was time for Mother Teresa to speak, she emerged from a curtain behind the platform, and it was only when she was called. She didn't sit up there with everyone else, and it says that she slowly, this article says she slowly hunched her way to the microphone, and Hillary, in her memoir, which is called Living History, says she was struck by how tiny Mother Teresa was. In fact, you can see there, Hillary's five foot four, and so Mother Teresa's probably pushing five ten But Hillary said in her memoir, she was struck by how tiny and how frail and fragile this little woman was, wearing only socks and sandals in the bitter cold of a February Washington day. Now, what's really shocking, however, was what happened next. The title of Mother Teresa's talk was, Whatever You Did... Whatever you did unto the least of these, you did unto me. She began talking about Jesus and John the Baptist in their mother's wombs. And she talked about their mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, and how the unborn child in the womb of Elizabeth, John the Baptist, leapt for joy as he felt the presence of Christ in the room when Mary entered to speak to Elizabeth. She went on to speak about love and of selflessness and selfishness and a lack of love for the unborn and a lack of want for the unborn because of one's selfishness. Jesus said the sister who brought joy while he was still in the womb of Mary had died on the cross because that's what it took for him to do good to us and to save us from that very selfishness. Peggy Noonan, who is a speechwriter, was a speechwriter for Reagan, uh, was there. And she said, by this point in the talk, attendees, 3,000 attendees at this national prayer breakfast, began to shift in their seats. As much of what the Holy Lady from Calcutta had to say was striking just a little bit too close to home. And then the sister said something that made everyone very uncomfortable. She said this, But I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because Jesus said, If you receive a little child, you receive me. So every abortion is the denial of receiving Jesus, the neglect of receiving him. Here, Noonan went on to say that there was a cool, deep silence that enveloped the room, and then slowly, on the right-hand side of the room, one person began to applaud, and then another, and then another, until the entire room was standing, giving Mother Teresa a standing ovation of a ballroom according to Peggy Noon, was eventually swept up in nonstop applause that went on for six minutes it just went on and on and on applauding this tiny woman and yet she says some people in the room did not clap she said on the stage Hillary Clinton didn't nor did her husband Bill nor did Vice President Al Gore or Tipper Gore they sat there in the glare of the hot lights all eyes in the crowd fixed upon them as they tried not to move or be noticed conspicuous of their lack of response, clearly uncomfortable as the applause raged on. You can understand why. Peggy Noonan goes on to write, but the tiny, weak, aged lady was only warming up. She says she returned to that selfishness and She said, by abortion, the mother does not learn to love, but kills even her own child to solve her problems. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love one another, but to use violence to get what they want. So let me ask you, who was the most powerful person in the room that day? Was it Bill Clinton, the President of the United States, or Hillary Clinton, or Tipper Gore, Al Gore, billionaires, members of Congress, Supreme Court judges, or was at a five foot ten elderly Albanian nun who gave her life away to the children of Calcutta. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's precisely God's power in us, His Holy Spirit in us, in all of our frailty that makes the beauty of that power and the beauty of our fragility so stark and so amazing. We have this treasure in jars of clay, and our frailty reveals God's power in us it makes it stand out even more that's the first thing we see here the second thing we see in this passage is that for followers of Jesus suffering a version of that frailty and fragility also produces God's glory in us so it not only demonstrates his power in us but it produces his glory in us verses 16 through 18 though outwardly we're wasting away yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It's funny, for years now, maybe 12 or 13 or 14 years, um, I've always had this little thing bouncing around in my head, a little axiom of sorts, which is I don't really entrust myself to people who haven't suffered. Um, I don't know why that little axiom is in my head, um, but I think it's actually important um, because suffering does something that is really amazing. Um, It creates something or has the ability to create something beautiful in us. Because until we've suffered, at best we're just likely to be kind of naive, right? Even if you're really a great person, until you've suffered, it's just a certain level of naivete. At worst, which is probably what I would have been like when I was younger, um, we're likely to be arrogant. We're likely to be judgmental. And some people are likely to be cruel in the absence of suffering. It's our suffering, the suffering of believers and the spirits work in us, however, that cures us of our pride and leads us to desperately turn to Jesus, and eventually, actually, that very suffering at the hands of God makes us whole, makes us beautiful. About a year ago, I read um, The Gulag Archipelago, which I highly recommend um, if you have uh, a long period of time with which to read a book. It it won the Nobel Prize back in 1970. It was written by a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And uh, early on in Alexander Solzhenitsyn's life, he was in the army. He was part of the Bolshevik uh, Revolution in Russia, He was a captain in the army. He was a Marxist. He was a good collectivist. Um, He was an ardent atheist. Uh, But when he returned from World War II, he committed the cardinal sin of criticizing Stalin and as a result was thrown into the gulag system for what's called a tenor. He was thrown in for 10 years. But it was in that gulag system, this series of prison uh, camps, concentration camps, mostly in Siberia, it was through this gulag system where he became Christian, through watching Christians suffer differently and by enduring suffering himself. I'm going to read a little section of what he says in the Gulag Archipelago. He says this, it was granted to me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. Listen to this. In the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In the excess of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good and that I was well-supplied with systematic arguments. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me That the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart, and through all human hearts. That is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, bless you prison. I've served enough time there, I nourished my soul there, and I say without hesitation, bless you prison for having been in my life. One of the things that I'm privileged to see in the lives of believers here at Seven Hills Fellowship and now in 20 however many years of ministry is these people go through horrible things like just miserable divorces and infidelities and death of love with all these things. And time and time and time again, what I hear coming from the mouths of these people who have suffered horribly is where they say, but I wouldn't change a thing. And every time they say it, I try really hard to be a pastor and go, yeah, praise the Lord. (laughs) And reality, what I think is, I hope I don't have to ever go through what you've been through. But the reason they're able to say I wouldn't wish it any other way is because every single time what they're saying is, God has done something in me that is better and far more beautiful than ever would have happened had I not endured the most painful thing that I've ever had to endure. Thanks. What Solzhenitsyn experienced firsthand was the power that suffering had to strip away arrogance and pride and to show him the reality of his heart. And it was ultimately his very own suffering that led him to trust in Christ, laying there on the rotting straw of the gulags, and even more, to become someone who is truly beautiful. And Paul makes it clear that for the Christian, this is precisely what suffering begins to do, to reveal and to create something glorious in us. In the mid-40s, C.S. Lewis was on the radio um, giving some addresses, and and those radio addresses ultimately ended up becoming what we know as the book Mere Christianity, which was published in 1952. So in 1952, C.S. Lewis penned these words. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense at all. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards, You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Eight years later, um, after the death of his wife, in a book called The Problem of Pain, he wrote these words that are still very much the same. He says this, we're not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art, something that God is God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I've called the intolerable compliment, the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse some child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it's not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother, a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. In other words, if it were conscious. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in just a minute. In the same way, it's natural for us to wish that God had designed uh, for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. Beautiful picture. And somebody who understood suffering and the beauty that suffering creates, the glory that suffering creates in us what this passage makes very clear that we are God's work of art and he is working tirelessly to make you and me glorious our suffering is the pain we feel at the hand of that artist our weakness and our frailty and our suffering all reveal God's power but also demonstrate his glory through us fortunately we're not alone somebody went there before us. Jesus is the ultimate jar of clay. Isaiah 53 says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're hard-pressed, but Jesus was crushed for our sin. We've been persecuted, but Jesus was abandoned by God on the cross for us. He was punished in our place. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was punished for our rebellion, and his punishment has been the very thing that has brought our peace with God. Today, when you look around this room, you're going to see these tables with bread and wine or bread and grape juice, and these tables represent the ability of you to be pulled up, to pull up a chair to the table of the family of God, invited there by God himself because of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus it is because of the death of Jesus that you're able to take this bread and dip it into this wine. And the message communicated into this is God says, you're my daughter. You are my son. You are perfectly clean because all of your iniquity has been laid upon my son. and He was punished in your place. And so this meal is a declaration from God to you. And in this meal, he says, if you trust in my son, if you follow him and have given your life to him, and you say, I believe that my righteousness, my ability to come before you isn't because of my righteousness, but because of his, then what God says is you are welcome to the table. And in this meal, he says to you, you're clean, right? In this meal, he says, you're forgiven, not just for everything you've done in the past, but for everything you'll do in the future, right? And not just for you, but for all the sins of all of the people in all the world that will ever trust in Jesus, the death and the life of my son Jesus is more than enough to cover over all of your sin, all of your rebellion, all of your brokenness. That's the declaration of the voice of God in this meal. Now, there's another voice that will speak to you. And the other voice that will speak to you will say, you've done it too many times. There's no way God can forgive you for that. Or there's no way that God is willing to forgive you for that. That other voice will say, you know, the thing you did was too big. There's no way God can forgive you for that. Maybe if it was smaller, maybe he could forgive you for that, but that was too big, right? Or maybe that other voice will say, it'd be one thing if you did it once or twice, but you've done this over and over and over again. There's no way, there's no way that God can forgive you for that. But God's voice is louder than those other voices or that other voice. And God's voice says, Don't you dare. Don't you dare minimize the honor of my son. The blood of Jesus is far more than enough. I'm going to read the words of institution, and then I'm going to ask you to take a moment and that you believe God's voice. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your voice, um, and I just absolutely pray that we would hear your voice today declaring that we're not guilty because our sin has been removed, declaring that we're righteous because your son's righteousness has been placed upon us. Father, I pray that we would hear your voice in this meal today, that you love us, that we are your children. I pray that we would hear your voice saying that there's nothing that we can do um, to make you love us any more or any less than you do right now, simply because we are your children. Let us hear your voice in this meal today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.